The Secrets of Star Wars is brought to you by the StarQuest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. You're listening to Secrets of Star Wars, episode 35. Hello there. It's a power that Jedi have that lets them control people and make things float. Impressive. Every word in that sense was wrong. Help me, Obi-Wan Kenobi. You're my only hope. This station is now the ultimate power in the universe. I find your lack of faith disturbing. It's against my programming to impersonate a deity. That's not how the Force works. Force is with me, and I am with the Force, and I fear nothing. Remember, the Force will be with you, always. Hey everybody, I'm Father Andrew Kinstetter, a.k.a. Father Fett, and you're listening to The Secrets of Star Wars, where we talk about everything connected to that galaxy far, far away. Today we're beginning our discussion on all the connections and lore of the Mandalorian culture, and we're beginning with the animated series The Clone Wars. And specifically, we're talking about Season 2, Episodes 12, 13, and 14, titled The Mandalore Plot, Voyage of Temptation, and Duchess of Mandalore. And joining me on the panel this evening are, first of all, we have Thomas Sanherjo. Hey, Thomas. Hi, Father. And second, we have Angela Cialana. Hey, Angela. Hello there. Mike Creevy and Andrew Hermes were both unfortunately unable to join us this evening, so we have uh, the trio here tonight. So a few, uh, actually just one point before we kind of jump into it. I was just kind of looking at these episodes, uh, uh, just some stats about them, and, and just to point out that they were released in January and February of 2010. So mm-hmm. we're, we're hitting just about the 10-year uh, release of these particular episodes. So I'll throw it to you guys first, but just kind of what were your uh, initial impressions of, of this particular story arc? We're going to take these episodes kind of as an arc versus individual episodes. So this was like a re, 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 re watch for me <laughs> because I love this um, arc and I've like watched it so many times. Um, as I mentioned in like our first kind of reboot episode, uh, Obi-Wan is my favorite uh, character. And um, so this arc was like really, really important in learning more about him as a character, as a person, and really kind of humanizing him. Um, so I I love it. Um, and uh, I love a lot of the themes that are um, explored in this episode as well. Oh, and Duchess Satine. How can you not love right. that? Uh, Ewan, Ewan McGregor kind of like, I, I know he didn't voice, it was James Arnold Taylor who voices Obi-Wan here. But it's just kind of funny that like Ewan McGregor in Moulin Rouge, uh, his love interest is Satine and here his love interest is Satine. So pretty funny. <laughs> Yeah, I, I like this episode. This It touches on a lot of topics that I'm really interested in, especially uh, nonviolence and nonviolent protest, uh, you know, uh, going against the system that's demanding that you stand on one side or the other. Um, I, I really like that it, it approaches that topic in a really relatable but very profound way. And uh, that, this show was one of those that just, it, it amazes me that for at where we're at, a 10-year-old show for kids, <laughs> like really, really for kids, you know, because I, I think that's a, a complaint that's lodged against Star Wars a lot, that it's a kid's 
uh, you know, it's a kid's fantasy genre. It's, it's, it's for children. And that's why, you know, people get mad about Jar Jar Binks. And it's like, well, it's for kids. That's the point. But when you have something that's for kids that can make such a profound statement mm-hmm. uh, as this show, it's it's it, and it did it over and over and over again. And even like right up to the last couple of seasons, it still is speaking really, really big truths in a very profound way. Um, and I love it. And this is one of those great examples of the show doing that. Yeah, I would totally agree with you. I was telling Thomas and Angela before that I've only seen a, a relatively small number of of Clone Wars episodes. And that was one of the first things going through my mind was, wow, this is, this is heavy. Or, you know, the, um, the, just the, the Mandalorians that took their own life versus, uh, share their, or, you know, be able to, to get the secrets force from them. I was like, okay, yeah, there's, there's some, some pretty heavy stuff here, but, um, I, I also enjoyed it. I, uh, yeah, it, Obi-Wan Kenobi was was a really fun one to kind of watch through these and um to find out a little bit of his backstory. Um you kind of get hints at it. I don't know is is his backstory with Satine ever really fleshed out? No, no, not fleshed out. We never see okay. any flashbacks or anything like that. We just know that that he and Qui-Gon s- served her basically for a year sometime in the past. Yeah. Um so so yeah so that was that was really interesting because even in my um introduction to the Star Wars universe I started with episode 2 and so Obi-Wan and Qui-Gon and um that whole realm of of characters was was some that I were, was really close to so um seeing him it, through these episodes was really cool to to learn a li- little bit more about him and then also yeah Thomas with with some of the things that you brought up there was a lot of kind of um, just war theory is what I what kept going through my head. Uh, and so I, I kind of jotted down a few things with that and and, you know, pacifism versus, you know, how when do you get into the fight and all of those sorts of themes were were super prevalent. Um, so, yeah, let's jump into the to this to the discussion then and, and we'll just kind of start with with a, a recap of, of the episodes. And the the first episode, uh, the Mandalore plot. Um, there's just the basic summary: is that the rumors have reached the Senate that the leader of the Council of Neutral Worlds, who is Duchess Satine of Mandalore, is secretly building her own army to use against the Republic, and Obi Wan is sent to investigate to discover the truth. And so, General Obi-Wan Kenobi lands on Mandalore and meets with Duchess Satine, and he is first greeted by Prime Minister Almec, um, who right off the bat asserts that the rumors are are false and that Duchess Satine would never turn against the Republic, and she values peace more than her own life. And we learn at this point from Almec that Mandalorians have turned away from their violent past and that all the warriors were exiled to the moon of Concordia. Um, who also, and he also claims that they died out years ago. And at this point, Obi-Wan brings up that he met a man in Mandalorian armor, Jango Fett. And this is where we get the soft retcon, I guess you would call it. <laughs> um, Almec asserts that Jango Fett is only a common bounty hunter and that he somehow acquired the armor. So, but, but these are unreliable narrators, even at this point. You know, this is like, I, because... Then then he pulls up the holocron with like a, another instance of somebody in Mandalorian battle armor fighting, and they're like, "Oh yeah, oh well, that's these other guys that we've been, you know, like, okay, how Fair much enough. are we going to dodge this bullet, you know?" <laughs> <laughs> 
I, I, I tend to, I tend to believe Almec, but I definitely can see to your point. <laughs> I, I, you know, I think that there are people that don't want to give up this, you know, this warrior <laughs> way. And I don't, I don't know. I, I don't think that you have to go so far as to say Jango Fett's not a real Mandalorian to, to let that be okay, you know? Like, he's not Mandalorian, and he's exiled, right? And so he's not really Mandalorian anymore, but that doesn't necessarily mean he stole the armor, just that they don't recognize him. So maybe one thing just to bring up is all of the Mandalorians in this episode look the same, right? Mm -hmm. And Jango Fett obviously does not look like them. And that's very obvious. He also doesn't sound like them. So... That I mean, to me, that just was when I first watched this was kind of like, okay, well, maybe George is really making this statement that mm-hmm. Django is not a true Mandalorian. But, you know, then, of course, we're doing this after reviewing the first season of The Mandalorian show. Mm-hmm. Yep. And in that show, we see that later on in The Mandalorian's history that at least, you know, we know at that point that they say be- being Mandalorian is not a blood thing. It's a creed thing. Mm-hmm. So it, it it makes for interesting discussion because you can be on either side of this kind of debate or discussion and right. and still be right, you know. <laughs> so mm-hmm. uh, Absolutely. I, I you know, I, I definitely don't mind the retcon. I don't mind Django Fett being kicked out. I just don't see that there's like a definitive like Boom, here's yeah. the moment where this absolutely was stated. So I, I, I really want to leave room open on either side of that argument for people. And, and I'm, I'm going to bring this up again because this is going to become an issue uh, when we see one of the characters do something that is specifically not supposed to be done by Mandalorians yeah. apparently <laughs> and why that's an issue. So, Well, and, and maybe, you know, Jango Fett views himself still as a Mandalorian and mm-hmm. is still adhered to the, the, the creed that, that he believes to be what makes him a Mandalorian. So uh, after, after that little uh, dialogue, uh, Obi-Wan visits with, with Duchess Satine, and it's immediately made apparent that those two already know each other and have a past. It's at that point that Obi-Wan reveals that uh, there was this uh, Mandalorian saboteur who attacked a Republican cruiser, and Duchess Satine quickly says that that wasn't any of her people. And the Mandalorian in question took his own life rather than submit to questioning. So they didn't actually figure out who, who that was. And there was a little bit of foreshadowing there. I thought that was interesting as I watched through it a couple times. Uh, Duchess Satine makes the assertion. She says, every one of my people is as trustworthy as I am. And then immediately, if you notice, Senator Merrick is <laughs> very uncomfortable with that statement and starts to like get defensive. Yeah. And yeah, it took the second time through to even notice that. <laughs> yeah. Oh man, he looks shady. I was, I was yeah. like, oh, that's the guy. That's your guy right there. That's a bing <laughs> pinpoint on him. That's the one. <laughs> yeah. So then next, uh, Satine invites Obi-Wan to, to go walk about the city. And then we have a discussion about her commitment to peace and neutrality. And we also get a little bit of more information on the group of Mandalorians who are not committed to peace. Mm. And she reveals that they are known as Death Watch. Well, and at this point, too, it's really interesting because this is still like from our perspective as a viewer, her her stance is very simplistic. Like it's 
no violence, no violence, mm-hmm. no violence. And, you know, and that, it like, it just seems like kind of ridiculously adamant about no violence and not getting dragged into things, but we don't see the bigger depth until, uh, you know, the whole series of shows plays out. And so you yeah. kind of, at the beginning, you're kind of like, well, why don't you get in the war? You need to get in the wards. The, the Federation is sort of is bad. And, and there's, but there's more subtlety that goes into it than that, which is really cool. I, I really like that the way that she, they can lead us along. <laughs> she starts off as what um, we would consider to be an absolute pacifist. Mm-hmm. Right. At least that's how she's portrayed as like nonviolence, no force, never. Um, and, and yeah, I, I keyed in on that very quickly and was like, well, I, that, I, I was sort of agreeing with Obi-Wan that he was kind of saying that she was an idealist and not a realist. Mm-hmm. And it was like, well, I don't, I don't know if that's quite how you can approach this. Um, and yeah, we, even, even watching her throughout these episodes, that gets a bit more nuanced as, as we go forward. So she, she clearly recognizes that, that there's this group of, of hooligan Mandalorians, as she calls them, called, called Death Watch, who are, they idolize violence and the warrior ways of the past. And, uh, she thinks that they're just a small group and they have all been tracked back to the, to the moon of Concordia. We have uh, a scene then between Count Dooku and we find out later it's pre Vizsla. Um, and we, we basically learn that the Separatists are in league with Death, Death Watch and have promised to support them to overtake Mandalore. And Count Dooku um, assures pre Vizsla that when the Republic intervenes, it will turn public opinion against the Republic troops and it will put them all in favor of Death Watch, making Death Watch, not this terrorist group, but rather liberators, and help them to overtake Mandalore. And I would just point out that uh, John Favreau uh, mm-hmm. voices Pre Vizsla, so mm-hmm. that was that was pretty cool because he also voices is it Paz it was Paz Vizsla, Vizsla mm-hmm. in uh, the Mandalorian chapter three. So we go back to Obi-Wan and, and Satine, and they continue to discuss the philosophy behind peacekeepers. And this is where Obi-Wan asserts that, that peacekeepers need to be on the front lines of a conflict. And Satine is adamant that peacekeepers are meant to assure that no conflict arises. And this is where Obi-Wan thinks that sh- her views are idealistic and not realistic. Um, but before they can really do anything else, there's an attack on the plaza. Uh, by Death Watch. And she is the first one to run in to check on the people that have fallen, which I thought was very telling against that conversation. It was such a great piece of like character development to see. Nope. Even even with Obi-Wan there, she's the first one that runs in to like grab the, the wounded people and start pulling them out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that, actually that's that's kind of a, a flop. You would have assumed that the Jedi would have been the right. one to do that first. And yet they, they, they play off that quite a bit because, mm-hmm. uh, well, it's general Obi-Wan Kenobi, which mm-hmm. again sounds very weird mm-hmm. for, for a Jedi to be a general mm-hmm. and on the front lines fighting. Um, and I think that there was, a, uh, there was a comment by Anakin, I think it must have been in, in the second episode of this arc where he's telling Satine that we fight for peace. Mm-hmm. Right. And Satine mm-hmm. says, oh, that is such a, a contradiction. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, an interesting dynamic playing out. So this attack happens on, on the plaza. Uh, the, the man responsible takes off, and Obi-Wan pursues him, and uh, again, he, he takes his own life rather than, rather than be caught. 
But Satine recognizes when she speaks to him that he is speaking the language of the moon Concordia. And she realizes that, that that's where they need to go to find uh, who's behind the attack. And tells Obi-Wan that he can't go without her, that she has to go with him. And so they head off to the, the moon of Concordia. I mean, they knew that, I don't know if we mentioned this, they knew that it was Death Watch because the symbol of mm. Death Watch was right. there as a hologram, I guess. And actually, I wanted to mention in the Mandalorian episodes, we were talking about maybe what that symbol was, and we had guessed a few things. Um, but on StarWars.com, it says that that symbol of Death Watch is a Shriekhawk, in full dive. So I guess that was a bird on that was common on Mandalore. So yeah. just interesting plot or tidbit. Yeah. So they recognize that it is Death Watch and that they have to go to Concordia and Satine and, and Obi-Wan uh, head up there. Uh, they are met by Governor Vizla and he is he's the leader there on Concordia. And Obi-Wan decides to go sneak around and have a look and tell Satine to keep Vizla, Vizla occupied. And Obi-Wan heads off in a speeder, arrives at a mining facility, and he very quickly discovers that it is not abandoned, like Governor Vizla said, or that they, they thought it was. And he finds the members of Death Watch down in the mine and, and is quite quickly captured. I found it interesting that I figured he would use the force way more. He yeah. he was captured <laughs> way too easily in my in my opinion. I think he was caught off guard. Yeah. But but it, it was our assumption around here too that like I mean he's just not I don't know, he just doesn't seem to be fighting to full potential either there. So maybe he's distracted because of Satine. And I think that's that's like a theme of this this episode arc actually. Um this idea of attachments and and calling mm. and vocation and all that. So we'll get to that at the end. But yeah, I, I think that kind That's of plays point, into though. it. Good point. Yeah, I hadn't I hadn't considered that. So Obi Wan gets captured. He's he's hanging upside down on this conveyor belt that's going to crush him. And uh, while Death Watch operates the the machines, and he communicates with Satine while she is uh, with Governor Vizla, and tells her to come and rescue him <laughs> we get so that was snarky oh, obi-wan oh, at this point <laughs> that that was kind of a fun scene too because she has this earpiece in and she's trying to like talk to governor visla and obi-wan without <laughs> governor visla knowing that she's talking to obi-wan well she's like touching um, her ear which was <laughs> that that's what made right. it funny to me yeah she manages to convince him that that she's not quite feeling well and needs to go for a walk and uh, so she jumps on a speeder and goes off and uh, enters the, the mining facility and, and uh, rescues, rescues Obi-Wan. There was a, a, another kind of comment or a, a dialogue exchange there about um, their, their different philosophies on, on being a pacifist or not. Mm -hmm. and, and that was kind of interesting because I, I wrote it down. Uh, because she tells Obi-Wan, she says, for a man sworn to peace, you take an unseemly pleasure in the injuries of others. Mm -hmm. And he responds with, for a woman sworn to nonviolence, you don't seem troubled that I could have been killed back there. So they keep kind of playing those, those two uh, opposing views off of each other. 
they they then basically have a fight with the members of Death Watch. And this is one of the crucial moments of the whole episode because Governor Vizsla makes the dramatic reveal. And I think, Thomas, this is probably what you were referring to. Takes his helmet off. He takes his helmet off (laughs) and, like, shows who he is. Which doesn't make sense for the character, doesn't make sense, but he like he wants them to know who he is, oh, and yeah. so he takes the helmet off, mm-hmm. and and that's and this is this goes back to like the question of why is it that the Mandalorian in the in the series that we've seen recently has to keep his helmet on, and and I keep coming back to the fact the only thing I can think of is that it's because he's a foundling, and there's something about him being a foundling that he can't take the helmet off to reveal who he is without being removed from his position as a warrior uh, amongst the Mandalorians. And I don't know. I hope we get more of it. I hope, I hope that they really explore this idea because I'm sure that other people have pointed out this fact <laughs> that, that the, the helmet taking off is not an issue for anybody who really is a Mandalorian. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and we, we saw in the flashbacks in the Mandalorian that, that Din Djarin was rescued by Death Watch, mm-hmm. right? So that would somehow be connected to this member, these members of Death Watch, uh, somehow. Yeah, I I tend to think that it it must the don't take your helmet off kind of rule. If it doesn't just apply to Din, then it probably is like a some kind of survival um, rule that they made up, like after Mandalore was. Um, somehow obliterated by the empire Mm. so the night of a thousand tears yeah so that's my theory because we have seen like sabine wren takes her helmet off all the time in star wars rebels uh if Django is a mandalorian he takes his helmet off so you know um yeah i I tend to think that it has to do with the, the the mandalorian series has to do with that point in time right that they're at yeah that could be too yeah um well and, and even the the other mandalorians in in the mandalorian they all seem to be of the same i guess well mm-hmm. the same creed but like none of them we saw we never saw any of them take off their helmets either mm-hmm. right so so i i suspect that it wasn't limited to to din but probably his clan mm. well but, maybe it's one of those maybe it's one of those like uh the Jewish Passover tradition of having your shoes on and your your loins gird mm-hmm. as if you were going to to be ready to leave, That's right? A good and point. Always, so always ready to battle, especially after an event like that where everybody almost is wiped out. Always being ready is really important. I thought you I thought you guys were going to say the big reveal was the dark saber. <laughs> oh no, that's well, next, man. That too. <laughs> <laughs> that's after. That's a, that's secondary to taking off the helmet, in my opinion. <laughs> Then all uh, of a sudden, <laughs> yeah, yeah, because that's that's very much next. He pulls out uh, the dark saber, and very quickly tells Obi Wan that it was that it was stolen from the Jedi Temple by the Mandalorians during the fall of the Old Republic, and that many Jedi have been killed by the dark saber. Um, and Angela, I think you know the the history a little bit better. The dark saber was built by. A Mandalorian who was a Jedi. Yeah. Um, it was actually a Vizsla, um, okay. who was uh, the, the one who built it. And then um, it was kept in the Jedi Temple after he died. And then the Vizsla clan actually stole it 
from the Jedi Temple. So when Pre Vizsla says, my ancestors stole this from the Jedi Temple, that's what he meant. It was literally his ancestors, the Vizslas. And one thing that I like about this scene is, uh, even though he's a pretty rotten guy, Pre Vizsla, <laughs> he's very two-faced and stuff, um, he he does uphold this Mandalorian concept of like um, honor in battle. In other words, he he a lot he gives Obi Wan his lightsaber so that mm-hmm. Obi Wan can defend himself mm-hmm. in battle against the Mandalorian warriors. So I, I did like that one aspect of this scene. Wasn't there? Wasn't it at this point too that um, Satine throws a rocket at one of the Mandalorians? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, she hits one of them in the head uh, as they're attacking Obi Wan. So, yeah. So, so she's she's not quite an absolute pacifist. Yeah. So, uh, we'll get more into that. Yep. <laughs> Pre Vizsla and Obi Wan have a a fight, uh, and it more or less kind of ends with with a standoff, and and Obi Wan and Satine manage to escape, and. Uh, at the at the very conclusion then of that that episode, Obi Wan concludes that that the separatists must be the ones supporting Death Watch, um, and Satine doesn't really want to believe that. And the end of the episode uh, says that Obi Wan and Anakin Anakin shows up at this point, and they are going to escort Satine to Coruscant um, to talk to talk to the Senate. And Ahsoka's missing, which is. I, I know that they I know they do this dip in and out of having her as his as his padawan, but it's it's really interesting that she's missing from this series because uh, as the character develops later, this would have been a really interesting uh, development point for her in this resistance against uh, a government that does not allow you to have a say and doesn't allow you to to move mm. your own way through whatever they've decided the the path must be. So you're referring to how the Republic treats the Mandalorians? Right, mm-hmm. right. And I, and I think it would be interesting to see her play off of mm-hmm. uh, of this whole situation and this character. But we don't get that. We just get the, uh, which, which I think is good. I think the, the interaction between Anakin and Obi-Wan is really important to this series as well, like you were talking about revealing more of his backstory. I know enough about Ahsoka, um, and and I guess this would be spoiler territory if you haven't seen the Clone Wars. I think, um, <laughs> yeah, I I know that she leaves the Jedi Order, and I'm assuming that's what you were referencing. Mm-hmm. Is that 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 there's some sort of conflict between her and and the Jedi Order, which I will watch and and discover. But I <laughs> kind of already know a little bit. So yeah, okay. Yeah, it depends on which way you come to the series. If you come through Rebels, then you have yep. a little bit of information yep. about her already. And yeah, I mean, I, she's a, a dramatically interesting. I, I would say out of all of the characters outside of the movies, she's the most interesting mm-hmm. um, because she really does uh, develop all different directions throughout the course of the Clone Wars and then into Rebels. And um and her and following her, you see someone grow into their own in this world that's so different from ours, but also so very similar in a lot of ways. There is also a a novel written um, mm-hmm. about Ahsoka, um, set between her time in Clone Wars and her time in Rebels, um, and I have read that too, and I think that probably gave me some some background as well. Mm-hmm. So I like that it is Anakin and Obi Wan, and I think that was very intentional. 
um, in, in these episodes because of their scenes in the turbo lift. <laughs> right. Um, they get their best talking done in the turbo. Yes. <laughs> um, and, you know, I love how it is. Um, it's that image from Attack of the Clones that, you know, in the in the movies, it was Anakin's love um, that they were mm. discussing or kind of like hinting around. Um, but then, you know, with with this one, it's it's Obi-Wan. And it's really cool that um, we get that that idea set up, you know, in this episode that um, sort of there's like this hint that Anakin gives like, hey, so what's up with you guys? Did you have a past? And um, at the beginning of the Clone Wars episodes, there's always this little like wisdom, like fortune cookie type thing. And for this episode, it's if you ignore the past, you jeopardize the future. So that um, I think if if they would have if what would have happened if Anakin knew like what Obi-Wan really went through and what if Anakin mm. went to Obi-Wan and said, hey, mm. this is what's going on in my life. What's your advice? But he didn't, of course. So, it, right. it, you know, ignoring the past and um, jeopardizing the future, I got that a little bit with the, the Obi-Wan Anakin, you know, romantic vocational <laughs> situations here. Well, and, and you mentioned this earlier, too, is this also just, I mean, adds a, a human dimension to Obi-Wan. Like, as, as a Jedi, he's not immune to... Uh, human emotions and relationships mm -hmm. and falling in love and you know everything that makes us human and uh yeah if only anakin had decided to open up a little bit either of them if either of them had you know but they all yeah very and and i think that's that's one of the hazards of the jedi as, as you go through that you see more and more that's a hazard that the jedi have is that they're very closed off they're their emotions are bad, like this icky thing that they're supposed to completely avoid rather than just dealing with them mm -hmm. and discussing them and then moving on, you know? And so that's, you, you see the effect that has basically. And then the Sith is a complete, you know, opposite response where it's just like, just embrace your emotions, <laughs> like completely dive into them and do anything you want to. And it's right. like, it's, come on guys, there's gotta be a middle ground between these two things. <laughs> Well, and that's why it's it's been fascinating to even just look at like look at the Sith and the Jedi and say that actually neither neither one is fully in line with mm -hmm. with how we are called to live our lives because mm -hmm. yeah the Jedi say there is no emotion there is peace and yet if you deny your emotions and suppress them and and not talk about them that is incredibly harmful yeah. um, you know and so is just yeah embracing passion in any form. Well, and the same thing uh, here, you get, you get in this one, you get the, the juxtaposition of a completely peaceful character and a character that is a little more bent on war than he mm -hmm. probably is, is healthy being, you know, mm -hmm. I, like, I think that the Jedi order as a whole has bought into this war more fully than they should. And that's, but you see that problem kind of developing throughout the course of this, of the whole war. But, um, you know, you have a character that that's too peaceful, like has completely removed themselves from, uh, from any sense of opposing violence. Uh, and then you have this character that reacts very quickly to defending himself and anyone around him that he feels is being threatened almost to the point of not 
analyzing the situation properly before he does what he's going to do. Yeah. But it also seems like at like as they progress through this this arc that they both sort of almost kind of meet somewhere in the middle just a little bit. Like mm-hmm. she is she becomes she starts off as someone who's like an absolute pacifist and she kind of comes into the middle realm and he also I think probably recognizes that he is a Jedi and meant to be, you know, someone who promotes peace and and maybe is being a bit too um violent in his in his uh actions, you know, and and I and I think well it's at the end of this episode even and and we'll we'll get to it, but but um the 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 senator uh blanking on his name Merrick, Senator Merrick is um basically having both of them confront the the reality. She's holding the gun to to Senator Merrick and and Obi-Wan is there with his lightsaber and and he he basically he tells the teen that if she shoots him then she becomes a hypocrite and if Obi-Wan strikes him down then he's going to be held as a hero to everyone except Merrick and neither one of them actually respond to that it's it's yeah. actually Anakin, Anakin who comes in and which is one of the best him. parts of this whole arc <laughs> <laughs> Just, what he was going to blow up the ship <laughs> I, I was reading, I, I glanced at IMDb at that point, um, and, and I, I need to go back and watch the episode, but, but uh, someone on IMDb had commented that it's at that point you can actually hear a little bit of uh, the Imperial March yes. uh, uh-huh. playing in the background. Yeah. So, total... They do, yeah, they do. They do that at several there. points. Yeah, they do that at several points with Anakin where they have like these little moments where you like see this really dark side to him. You're like, whoa, that was <laughs> a little more brutal than it needed to be, you know? And he's and this okay is, with I also, it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's it's a it's kind of a joke to him almost, and it's like, whoa, that was that was intense. But um, and then I I also had I had to pause the even before we got to that point. So in the uh in the in the 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 bridge or the ship, uh, he starts that whole series off, and I'm, and I paused the thing and I said to my kids, "That's not how you make a suicide switch." <laughs> and they're like, "What?" And I'm like, "You don't make it so that when you push it, it blows up. You make it so that when you let go, it blows up right. because then they can't kill you." <laughs> and they were like, "Oh, that makes sense." <laughs> Good lesson, Dad. I'll keep that yeah, know, in right? mind for my future. <laughs> it's just they got to know these things. It's important to know these things. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> oh, cool. Well, we sort of spoiled the end, the end of the, uh, that episode, yeah. <laughs> but let's uh, let's jump back to the beginning. Um, <laughs> we gave into temptation. Oh man, <laughs> right. we just jumped the gun. Oh, okay, it's okay. It's okay. Voyage of temptation. <laughs> um, yeah. So, so essentially, the the episode starts off, and they're they're on their way to Coruscant, and um, Anakin and Obi Wan are very aware that Death Watch is going to try to assassinate Satine before she reaches the Senate to prevent her from stopping the republic from sending troops and so uh they they send their their clone troopers off to search for anything suspicious which by the and, way they're on a ship that looks just like the ship from um solo mm-hmm. oh did you pick up yeah. on that yeah i yeah i, yeah. I thought i thought that too and i was like wait a minute so is that a mandalorian ship is that a like, like was a it Republic- a Senate ship? Yeah, yeah a Senate ship. ship. Maybe I don't know. I don't know, but it was well, really it was, swanky. It was, <laughs> yeah, it was red though, wasn't it? It was colored red. In Solo, remember? No, in this one. No, it was like silver. It was silver, yeah. Because if they're red, then you know they're Republic ships. That's the mm. the red was the marking of the Republic. So if if it didn't have red markings on it, though, then it was something independent. Mm. So that's interesting. 
I don't know if this is quite a bit of a stretch or not, but as you mentioned that, um, you know, wouldn't wouldn't uh, Darth Maul becomes at some point the head of Death Watch. Mm-hmm. Right. So maybe through that connection, he somehow gets a hold of one of these ships. Mm-hmm. And it's through his criminal syndicate that in Solo, that's where the, the ship is involved. Yeah. yeah good. Thank you. That's a great point, actually. <laughs> wow. I really hope that's true because that, <laughs> that's, that's a good a, no. That's I think it's totally valid. I'm with it. So it's totally impressive to me that like if that's the case, then like the fact that the designers of the movie like actually yeah. were like, hmm, what kind of ship should we make for this guy? And then they like go back to the yeah to the Clone Wars. This random little moment. It's cool. Yeah. So we get uh, one of the uh, Obi Wan and Anakin scenes in the elevator. Um, and Anakin asks uh, Obi-Wan about his past with the Duchess, and Obi-Wan just kind of shuts him down. Um, we see the assassin droids escape, and then it kind of jumps back to Satine talking um, to her staff again about her position on, to the, uh, her position on the war. And, and she says that her, she opposes the war as an affront to life itself and wants to stay neutral. And we get some dialogue back and forth between Obi-Wan, too, because he walks in and he, he claims that, you know, some would say that the strongest defense is a, is a strong offense. And she, she replies with, I remember a time when Jedi were not generals, but peacekeepers. And Anakin, at this point, pipes up and says, you know, we are protectors. We fight for peace. <laughs> And yep. yeah, she she calls that an amusing contradiction, which is quite quite true. Yeah. Well, I like the I like the fact that Obi Wan's uh, uniform is reflective of this new mm-hmm. stance that he's taken. You know, he's not in the robes anymore. He's in armor, yep. and he's kind of embraced this. And, and and it really shows here that that's he's embraced this warlike stance. Hmm. We then kind of swap back to the assassin droid that was planted there. That um, it takes out a clone trooper, um, mixer, and 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 red eye. De- yeah, red eye, and uh, another brief little moment between Anakin and Obi Wan, and that's where Obi Wan opens up just a little bit about his past with Satine and reveals that he had spent a year on Mandalore protecting Satine. Him and Qui Gon had spent a year. Uh, protecting Satine from insurgents who had threatened her world, and they were on the run from bounty hunters the whole time. And um, so that is all that we kind of learn about the the past between the two of them. And R two D two discovers that there is a problem down below decks, and Anakin decides to take that that bullet and go down down below decks to to figure out what's what's going on. They they find this creepy looking mm-hmm. assassin droid and disabled. Those things are awesome. Oh my gosh, those oh, things are awesome. They're pretty cool. If you're going to make an <laughs> if, assassin droid, that's oh, the way to do it. That's, that's the way to do it, man. And if you've, if you've ever in your life experienced uh, ha- trying to shoo a mother spider out of your house oh. and, and that experience of all the babies coming off her back and running around crazy, you, you know that's, yeah, that's, and they did that and I was like, oh yeah, because I think I think honestly, it might have been that very year that I had that same experience in my house, oh. and then watched this, and I was like, "Oh, that's all. <laughs> that's the worst thing." Well, and then they're getting like in their helmets and stuff. 
It's like uh-huh. how yeah. like so confined, like you can't what are you gonna do? Uh, it's like in your face, literally. <laughs> yeah. Oh <laughs> uh, no. Oh, it's awful. Well, and I, I just, just I, I love uh, the moment there too between the clones and, and R2. Like uh Rex and Cody aren't there when R2 starts trying to tell people that something's wrong. And so the other uh the other clones are like, ah, oh, this droid's malfunctioning yeah. and he seems to think there's a problem <laughs> down here. And then you know, you know, both both the uh both the Jedi are like Ooh, that sounds serious. <laughs> yeah. I just hate spiders. I would just give up. <laughs> Ugh. Oh, those things are great. I was so happy when those all those little all the little oh. guys came out of the holes on the top. I'm like, yes, it's like a real spider. <laughs> yeah, so thankfully uh they managed to uh destroy it and, and take out all the the little baby ones and uh one of the assassin droids heads up the lift up to where Obi-Wan and Satine are, and they are also attacked. And Satine says something really uh, interesting there. Again, again, it kind of relates to her view as a pacifist, but she says, just because I'm a pacifist doesn't mean I won't defend myself. And then Obi-Wan mm-hmm. says, well, now you sound like a Jedi. <laughs> so, again, there's that, you know, uh, absolute pacifism would, would say no, no violence whatsoever, period. Um, but she is not quite that because she's willing to use uh, violence and force to defend herself. So then Anakin realizes that in order to smuggle this droid in the, into the hold, someone um, in a, some position of authority must have been behind it. And they pull up the manifest and it is unclear who is behind it because that particular crate that had the assassin droid is, is just marked as medical supplies. And somehow it's connected that then it must be one of the four senators. It's got a Senate stamp on it. Mm, so that's okay. what they say. It's that's got a Senate stamp, so it had to have been a senator that, that okay. put it in. And Obi-Wan then decides to use that information. He captures one of those little tiny assassin spider droids and decides to use it to see which of the senators uh, was the one who was, who was behind it. And he he kind of he looks to see which ones the little droid wants to attack and which one it doesn't, because the one that it doesn't attack is is the one who would have programmed it. And he walks around the table and it is revealed that Senator Merrick is the one who had programmed it and is the traitor who immediately kind of embraces that revelation and (laughs) captures Satine and heads out with her. Which again, we we get the the sense that Obi Wan is not on his A game right now. <laughs> yeah, right, right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, uh, yeah. That, again, I kept thinking about that too because if if he's really in tune with the Force, he would have sensed his deception or his um his intent to to capture Satine. But it is what it is, and and Senator Merritt gets the upper hand and and heads out. And meanwhile, Anakin and the troopers are taking out the final assassin droid and all the little droids down below decks. Merrick contacts Death Watch and they they call for reinforcements and immediately, and at at some point, I I must have missed it, they dropped out of hyperspace. Mm -hmm. Um, I think they dropped out of hyperspace and then Merrick called for reinforcements. And then uh, the reinforcements arrive and super battle droids board the ship and begin begin attacking. Yeah, I think when he takes out the bridge, because he goes to the bridge and immediately yeah, shoots yep, everyone, yep. and then he pulls them out of hyperspace contacts, and then the then the yep. super battle droids appear. 
Yep. Which those landing pods are pretty cool, man. They just oh, like strike yeah. into the the hull of the thing yeah. and pop open, and there's a bunch of battle droids right there. It's like, oh, that's <laughs> that's pretty bad. <laughs> yep. So Anakin and the clone troopers are trying to deal with all the super battle droids, and Obi Wan confronts uh, Senator Merrick on the bridge, and Anakin at that point is taking out all the battle droids below decks. And when we go back to Satine and Obi Wan, we get this. Uh, revelation between the two of them that Satine expresses her love for Obi-Wan and Obi-Wan reveals that he would have left the Jedi Order if she had asked him all those years ago. <laughs> Let's all it's a just big moment. take that in. <laughs> no, right? It's like, what? <laughs> oh, I remember watching that for the first time and it was just like, you know, your jaw drops and because, you know, I watched the original trilogy first. And so I saw Obi-Wan as the wise sage who, like, you know, he is the ideal Jedi. And even, mm-hmm. like, in the prequels, you know, he, he's very loyal to the, the council. And um, even though he loves Anakin, he does what he has to do, you know. And so he seems very by the book. So for this to be revealed about his, um, his past... Is really interesting, I but mean, it's still by the book, and that, and that's yeah. I think that's the difference there. That's really interesting because he's still by the book, where Anakin is not. Anakin Anakin wants both. He wants right. to do. He wants to have both the relationship and the the Jedi way. And Obi Wan is clear. I would have left. Yeah, if you had asked. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um. So I mean, to me, the theme of duty and vocation is really evident in their relationship and Satine and and Obi-Wan's relationship because I think, you know, it was mentioned um, earlier in this episode that uh, Obi-Wan talks about how Satine took on the task herself of rebuilding Mandalore. Mm -hmm. That, you know, she was alone. And so to me, it also, you know, the fact that she didn't ask Obi-Wan to leave or even reveal her love for him beforehand kind of indicates that she felt she had a a duty to her people, a vocation to be the one to take up the responsibility of rebuilding Mandalore. And um, perhaps she also, you know, realized that Obi-Wan would have been a great Jedi and, you know, decided to just keep her feelings to herself. So, yeah, I think it's really interesting that at the end of this episode, actually, they, they end up reaffirming their commitments to mm-hmm. to the Jedi and to to Mandalore and the way that they, they end up respecting each other, you know, mm-hmm. and the way that they choose to live their life. So, um, yeah, I think the, that even though it's shocking, you know, learning all of this and you know, people can kind of like ran, write fan fiction and all kinds of stuff about what would have happened. And ultimately, I think that's that's the message that I take away from it is that they were both um, re- they took on the responsibilities that were presented to them. Mm-hmm. Well, I think for either of them, it would have been a betrayal of who they are at their core to have abandoned mm-hmm. that dedication. And, um, and, and, and that's why I think it's, it's really important as Catholics to go back and talk about vocation in that way, that it's not, you didn't choose to do this. This, 
was something that you were built for. And when you really embrace that, when you really move into it with that full understanding of the core of your being is driven toward this thing, uh, and that drives you toward God, it, it, it's a very powerful thing. And, it, and it's, it, it removes that sense of, of l- it's limiting on me or it's not freeing to me to, to have to commit to this or to be stuck in this way. Yep. But it's a full embrace of who you are. And that's what I think both of these characters realize at this, by the end of this series is that, you know, they really were committed to these things. And yes, it was nice to, to think of other things that could have been, but ultimately that's not who they were. Well, and it's important to, to note that there is sacrifice there, mm-hmm. that, that they, they both had to sacrifice something. They had to sacrifice their, their feelings for one another and their, their, their love and that future that they could have had together. But in order to, to live out of the vocation that they were called to, which is ultimately more fulfilling than what they had mm-hmm. to give up. And, right. and that's, that's exactly kind of, you know, what we, what we talk about when we talk about vocations is, is that, you know, if you, if you live out of your vocations, you're going to be the most fulfilled that you can be on this earth, um, because you're doing what God has, has created you for and made you for. And, and I, I mean, there, there's so many connections even between just priesthood and the Jedi, mm-hmm. you know, and, and even the, the, the celibacy role and, and, and all of that. And, um, and, you know, and so many people, uh, one of the most common questions that I get from, from non-Catholics is when they find out that I'm a priest, um, even when I go to comic cons, especially it's like, oh, you're a Catholic priest. Oh, that means you, you don't have, you can't have a wife. You can't, you know, you can't have kids. And it's like, well, correct. I mean, I, I made the promise of celibacy, but celibacy is not so much about what I've given up as much as it is as it's it's put me in a position to be completely free in how i love and 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 love you know given to to everyone and sure i had to to sacrifice a, a specific part of that the romantic relationship and and having a family but even so the the family that i've gained you know on a, on a spiritual level spiritual sons and daughters and the parish community and um you know even even my immediate family and my niece and nephew and I, I haven't really sacrificed a family, but I've gained an awesome family. And that's, again, that idea of vocation of, of living out of, of who, who God has called me to be and, and who has God has called you guys to be and who Obi-Wan and Satine were meant to be in their particular right. roles as well. Yeah, so that kind of goes a little bit with, I mean, the, the Jedi understanding of like having attachments isn't perfect. But mm-hmm. there is that truth kind of to what you were talking about that you know, if, if a Jedi were to be married, um, as Anakin was, you know, he, he was so fearful for his wife's life Mm -hmm. that he ended up messing up a lot of stuff and, and giving into fear, um, and living by that fear. And, um, so, yeah, I mean, the idea that, you know, you don't necessarily, if you love someone, um, and you're married to them, you don't necessarily have to be attached to them in that right. unhealthy sense. Yep. But um, there is that, you know, again, we're talking about the Jedi being extreme. They say, well, if you're going to go there, you're going to have attachments, so just don't do it. You know, that seems to mm-hmm. be sort of their way of, of dealing with temptation. Um, so, uh, but yeah, I mean, there there is sort of that element too. And I think 
you know, we've been talking about how Obi-Wan has been off his game. And I really do think that he was distracted because he was he was so worried about Satine. Mm-hmm. I would agree. I think that's I think that's part of what they're trying to tell us here is that this was something they he recognized in himself that he was developing an attachment to her and then he moved away from that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because ultimately at this point when Merrick is threatening her with a gun, um, yep. she pleads with Obi-Wan, if you have any respect for me, please think about all these other people on this ship and don't, you know, don't do anything. Um, so he, even though Obi-Wan's following them with his lightsaber, he's not taking any initiative in terms of, um, you know, making a move uh, to, to, you know, swipe her away from Merrick or striking Merrick down. Um, but he is still kind of respecting that. Um, and he, in other words, I think if Anakin were in this situation, Anakin would have done something rash to save Padme mm-hmm. because he was attached to Padme. Um, but Obi-Wan was not completely attached to Satine. And so he was able to kind of think about everybody else on the ship, think about what was best. Yeah. Yeah. And in the end, Anakin is the one who, I wouldn't say he necessarily acts well, he probably does ask. Yes, you could have just cut the, but cut the guy's the, arm off, and yeah. you know that would have been <laughs> the end of it. I don't know. Like, <laughs> it's pretty. It's pretty brutal. Like the the decision he makes is almost like a puppy, like walking into a situation and going, "Oh, you guys are fighting over this toy here. It's mine now." You know, and that. But he killed someone, and and that's yep. and it's a big deal. And like both of them are stunned. At first off, they're like they're shocked and watching this happen. And Anakin's like, "What? He was going to blow up the ship." I love, and that's the only explanation he gives. <laughs> I love how they totally yep. set this up too to like really under underline Anakin's character because mm-hmm. the line that Merrick says is "Who'll strike first and brand themselves a cold blooded killer?" <laughs> yeah, mm-hmm. and then you just you see it happen. Yeah, but life goes on, and they they manage to kind of save the day with that, and and they get to Coruscant then at the end of that that episode, and. Meet up with with Chancellor Palpatine. Yeah, so then that that was the end of that episode, and we'll we'll jump right into the the third and the final uh, arc of this this particular story. And so this is now uh, Satine is is going to go talk to the Senate uh, in the hopes of convincing the Senate that that Death Watch doesn't represent their entire government and that they do not need the Republic's assistance. And. So, first of all, we have another interaction between Count Dooku and Pre Vizsla, and Count Dooku urges uh, Pre Vizsla to be patient and that the fighting, be patient for the fighting that is to come, and um, has Pre Vizsla send an assassin to Coruscant to take out Duchess Satine. And then back on Mandalore, uh, they, they very quickly realize that uh, Death Watch is uh, assembling and preparing for battle. And the prime minister uh, realizes that the people will turn in favor of Death Watch if the Republic sends troops to Mandalore. And so they want to stop that at all costs and leaves it up to Duchess Satine to, to, to do that with the Senate. And that's the first point where we get to see the depth of her uh, pacifism, of her, of her neutral stance, more than just pacifism, of, of knowing that if she allows the Republic to step in in this way that it's going to cause more conflict yep. and more strife rather than solve anything. Mm-hmm. 
and that's that's exactly what she she tells the Senate. Uh, and Chancellor Palpatine brings up the the modified communication <laughs> of Deputy Minister Jarek, and uh, you know the 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 deep fakes of of uh, the the Republic's <laughs> yeah, time. Oh my gosh! Yeah. <laughs> um. Well, it's, and, it happens so often in the in the in the series, uh, oh, the the Clone Wars mm-hmm. as a whole, where you're like sitting there watching Palpatine play both sides because he can't yep. lose. Mm-hmm. Like he can't lose, no matter which way this goes, he wins because he's just stirring up conflict and it's mm-hmm. creating more doubt, more distress, more fear, and yeah, it's yeah, it's awful and, and incredible at the same time. <laughs> yeah, a master puppeteer. So he pulls up this communication and Jarek modified transmissions basically says that they need the Republic's assistance um, to counter Death Watch and that he claims that Duchess Satine will, will cause their defeat. And Satine immediately recognizes that something's not right with this and Jarek is unfortunately killed by Death Watch so he can't even vouch for anything that he said or didn't say. And Palpatine is at that point, very much urging the Republic to vote in favor of sending assistance to help. And um, I liked, I, I put in quotation marks to help. And, and again, that same <laughs> sort of deal is that he, he's, he's just playing the game. He doesn't really care. He doesn't really want to help. He just wants to stir up conflict. And we go back to Obi-Wan encountering Satine afterwards, and they continue to talk about uh, their differing philosophies. And Satine very clearly asserts that the Republic um, is attempting to force its will upon Mandalore, and she is not, not happy about it. And Obi-Wan urges a bit of more, he urges her to be a little bit more rational and patient, and um, she kind of blows that off. She jumps into a transport vessel, which is sabotaged by the assassin that Death Watch sent, and the the vehicle, as it's trying to crash at that point, uh, the, the pilot manages to get to a, a landing platform where Satine is able to jump off and survive, but the ship and the pilot do not. And they meet up with Chancellor Palpatine afterwards, and since there was no, um, no evidence, uh, he tells her that it just must have been an accident. And Oh, the bureaucracy. <laughs> <laughs> Wasn't that why he was like elected into place to, to overturn? Was this whole... like? sluggish bureaucracy that was taking everything away from the the power of the senate i don't know <laughs> also masameda is such a yes man the so yeah. for those who don't know masameda is like that blue guy with horns that's always with Sen, um chancellor palpatine and like throughout this whole episode you just see him just whatever palp says he just goes with it <laughs> yeah yeah and and it was during this conversation that um that they sort of kind of shift their their thought though and and um with Satine suggesting that Death Watch is behind this, they they get on board with the idea that uh that if it is Death Watch, it's just increased this fear of Death Watch and um Death Watch Death Watch's power and it will just incline the Republic to vote in favor of occupying Mandalore. And Satine didn't know it at the time, but it was actually during that exact meeting that the Senate had an emergency meeting where they voted on this exact issue, and the Senate voted to send troops to Mandalore. 
So Satine decides to go solo and goes off by herself to meet her contact in the, the Ministry of Intelligence. And she meets up with, with uh, her, her contact and gets a, a data disk with the full transmission from, from Jarek. And the contact then is immediately killed by the assassin from, from Death Watch. And Satine is marked as the, the suspect in the shooting by the, the local authorities. And she goes on the run. And Sabine, or I keep wanting to call her Sabine every time that I've said, okay, I knew it was going to happen. Uh, Satine contacts Obi-Wan for help. And Obi-Wan meets up with, with Satine and she gives him the, the data card with the transmission. And at that point, the, the Mandalorian assassin finds them and they fight and the assassin gets away. And Satine decides to turn herself in to the authorities um, to distract the authorities so Obi-Wan can get into the Senate without any interference in order to give that full transmission to to the Senate so they can reverse their their decision. And Padme presents that transmission to to the Senate, and we see that Jarek actually didn't say that they needed the Republic's assistance, but rather Jarek says that to be successful, they must not get Republic assistance, um, but they should take care of uh, the Death Watch threat themselves. Which completely then foils Pre Vizsla's plans and Count Dooku's plans, and um, they can't really do anything and and are kind of defeated. Although Pre Vizsla is still convinced that he can he can win, mm-hmm. so that and I think that's an important point is that Pre Vizsla is like, well, I can still win, and and Dooku's like, yeah, but and then he calls him like, what is, what is the phrase that he used? A neophyte, yeah. <laughs> a neophyte such as yourself, and it's like, oh man, that's brutal. <laughs> And uh, but that's I, I think that's so telling because uh, Duke is playing the long game, mm-hmm. like the really, really long game. And you also wonder in that scene, though, how much he knows of uh, Palpatine's plans, because he's by this point kind of gone off on his own a little bit as well, which is why Asajj Ventress is, right. is his uh, apprentice. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I'm, I'm intrigued about how much he's planning on actually winning this war. Or is he still like playing for Palpatine's side or is he? completely rogue what's going on there yeah i I think you can argue that dooku is a guy who just um does everything in his own favor um yeah you know he i mean obviously you want the chancellor on your side the emperor of the universe to be you know so you want him on your side but uh i think he's kind of getting to the point where he has enough power to um to overtake palpatine Mm -hmm. or so he thinks Right. Well, and then the Senate votes to reverse their their decision, and and we're left with, well, we aren't necessarily left left with the questions, but they're left with the questions of who was ultimately behind all of these sorts of of things, and that is where that story arc concludes. So after that <laughs> sprint, uh, there were definitely a number of kind of overarching themes of these episodes, and we've kind of talked about um, a number of them. And, and so I, I kind of wanted to jump back into the, the pacifism uh, theme uh, just a little bit, uh, because uh, it, was, it was interesting. I was reading an article on um, Catholic thought and just war theory because of the whole nuclear war threat that has 
that has been uh, prominent in in the recent weeks. And so uh, the the author of of this article was kind of trying to talk about um, the Catholic view on just for, just war and what what we as Catholics can kind of do. And that that was very much in my mind as I was watching these characters kind of play it out on on uh, the Clone Wars. And so to just kind of give a very very brief kind of overview of just war theory, going back to to Saint Thomas Aquinas, just for for your guys's information and our listeners. Just War Theory um, deals with the legitimate and moral approach to how we can engage in in warfare, or if we should. And so in Just War, there are two more or less areas that we look at, and the first one would be uh, referring to the legitimate reasons a state may engage in war, and the second one would be the referring to how it must be carried out to remain just. And so St. Thomas Aquinas actually argues for, for three reasons for a war to be just. And he says that, that, first of all, the authority by which the war is engaged must be legitimate. So a ruler entrusted to the common good. Second, the cause must be just. And thirdly, the one waging war must intend to advance good and to prevent evil. The Catechism of the Catholic Church, 2309, if you are interested in looking this up, also talks about these sorts of issues, and it lists a number of other criteria as well in determining um, a just war. And so the Catechism says that first, uh, the damage inflicted by the aggressor on a nation or community of nations must be lasting, grave, and certain in order for a just war to be pursued. Number two, all other means of putting an end to it must have been shown to be impractical or ineffective. Number three, they must be, there must be serious prospects of success. And four, the use of arms must not produce evils and disorders graver than the evil eliminated. So something like a nuclear bomb would never be just because the evils that it causes is, is worse than um, the evil that would be eliminated. And then finally, in regard to how just war is to be carried out, um, two crucial criteria there is you, you cannot kill non-combatants, and two, you cannot use excessive force to achieve the end. And so that's, I know, a super, super brief kind of overview of that, but it was, it was really interesting to kind of apply that to, to what was going on here because, I mean, case in point, uh, Chancellor Palpatine, the emperor, However you, however you want to describe him, he is not at all engaging in just war. I was kind of comparing his his reasons to um, Aquinas's three reasons, and and technically he is a legitimate ruler, a legitimate authority entrusted to the common good because he is mm-hmm. elected to that position. Mm-hmm. So he does fit the first criteria, but the the cause must be just. Absolutely not. Um, the emperor is not out for any just cause. He's out for his own selfish reasons. And the one waging the war must intend to advance good and prevent evil. And of course, the emperor is not at all interested in advancing the good. Um, so it was it was nice to put that into perspective, which then told me that, okay, Satine is actually the one who is in the, the right here as, as she is trying to stay out of the war. And and she, you know, we kind of already talked. She's not an absolute pacifist. She's um, she's absolutely willing to use force in self defense, which is which is completely moral and correct as well. But she wants to avoid entering this war, which 
totally is not just. So I would throw that out to you guys and the listeners as just some food for thought and reflection. And I, and I think as a leader, it's it you can be personally pacifist and still be pro-conflict nation to nation because uh you know you yourself might not favor violence as an answer but the state itself does sometimes require that in defense of its people mm-hmm. and so that's and that's that's i think the what what the just war theory is getting at is we're, we're talking about you, you don't want to it's not we're right. not actively pursuing this we're saying okay because there are no other options Mm-hmm. this is the thing we have to do to protect the people that we are in charge of. And I think the best leaders are going to be the leaders that are personally pacifist or personally, and it, and I'm going to throw another term out there, which I think is more fitting for what she's talking about, which is the non-aggression principle, mm-hmm. that she's she's not initiating violence. But if violence is initiated, she does respond in kind because that's that's the the, the dialogue has been started that way from someone else. And mm-hmm. then it, it by necessity, it often has to continue that way. Yeah, she um, makes a point in, I believe it was the first of these three episodes. Um, she says, even extremists can be reasoned with. And then Obi-Wan kind of, you know, says, well, if you can hear them over, I don't know, their weapons, basically. But um, I think, uh, yeah, she she definitely is the uh, the one who is looking for diplomacy much more than the Republic is at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, the Republic, you know, even Padme's character throughout the Clone Wars series is um, a huge proponent of diplomacy. Um, she's always going on diplomatic missions. Um, and, uh, you know, she, in um, Revenge of the Sith, she even questions, you know, is the Republic really what I think it is? Because it doesn't seem to be looking for diplomacy anymore. So, um, yeah, I think uh, definitely when it comes to the church and being Catholic, especially at this time, it's like, you know, to to revisit these themes is, is really good and to reflect on, you know, the teachings of Jesus and what the teachings of the church and how we can live those out. And that's that's all good stuff. Yeah. Well, and I'll, I'll have to uh, add, a, add a note to this article that I was reading because um, he, he was making the point that, that you know, some, some Catholics want to be absolute pacifists because, you know, Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount says to turn the other cheek. And, and that's a, a, a valid position to take, absolutely. Um, but an absolute pacifist would say that, you know, I will never use force or violence ever because it's, it's always wrong. And they would only use the weapons of the spirit, prayer, fasting, and penance in order to affect change. Um, and, and it's, and that, that is a valid position to take. Uh, but then, uh, George Weigel also argues that, that just war theory, um, can be reconciled with the gospel because it takes seriously the responsibility to one's neighbor. And the question that he, proposes in that in in biblical terms and i thought this is a a fascinating way to kind of look at it is he says what should the good samaritan have done had he shown up during the robbers mugging the traveler Mm -hmm. and that's i mean that would sort of encapsulate what what we are trying to get at in just war like it it is appropriate to use some force out of out of this uh, responsibility to to protect and to save our, our neighbors and so that's 
you know, kind of all at play here as well. Cool. So what a, uh, <laughs> I had one more, that, one more uh, little thing. Um, sure. Not related to war and peace, but actually related to the aesthetic of these episodes. Um, the cubism of the Mandalorians mm. um, is really cool because, first of all, there is a little shout out to Pablo Picasso in Pre Vizsla, mm. um, his kind of quarters. On StarWars.com, they mentioned that there is a kind of a re- a redoing of uh, Picasso's Guernica, which is his really right. famous, huge anti-war um, painting. And of course, in Pre Vizsla's quarters, it is not anti-war. It is very much, you know, Mandalorians doing their thing. But cubism is, is cool because they, I think they chose that for the Mandalorians and this arc because cubism is about um, not seeing a um, subject from one viewpoint, but seeing the subject from multiple viewpoints mm-hmm. at multiple points in time. So that's why you see like the, the eyes and the nose and everything looking weird. That's the whole point of cubism. So, um, you know, as we were doing that thematically with, you know, war and peace and even, you know, Obi-Wan and Satine and all these different people, we were seeing different sides of them and different sides of these uh, topics. So I think it was really cool that they picked cubism to express that aesthetically. Yeah, the art was very, it was very interesting the way that the art played into this, uh, into this whole series, because I think one of the first things you notice when he walks, when Obi-Wan walks into the throne room is this uh, painting, this, this, uh, or I I don't know if it's a mural or if it was like a stained glass of of, uh, the Duchess. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's like the first thing you see as as he walks in and it's very colorful it's very pretty it's very uh pastoral and serene and it kind of reflects where she is and then you have that that uh contraposition with previsla's room with that uh that guernica painting that guernica style painting in the background very cool very spartan (laughs) any other final thoughts between you two nope okay well, I think then that concludes uh, this particular episode. So what did you, our listeners, think of these three episodes of The Clone Wars? You can definitely let us know, and so be sure to email us or comment on our Facebook or Twitter page and, and let us know what you thought. You can always email us any feedback at starwars at sqpn.com, and you can find StarQuest on Facebook at facebook.com slash Media and on Twitter at sqpn. And now, of course, we'd like to take a moment and thank our patrons who make it possible for us to create the secrets of Star Wars, including Peter M., Carl S., Rick H., Adam C., and Jeffrey J. Their generous donations at sqpn.com slash give make it possible for us to continue the secrets of Star Wars and all the shows that we do here at StarQuest. And you can join them by visiting sqpn.com give. Also, definitely be sure to subscribe to the show in Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And you can always find us on YouTube at the SQPN YouTube channel. To find any previous episodes of The Secrets of Star Wars, be sure to visit us at sqpn.com slash starwars. And so we will be back in two weeks when we will continue chasing down more of the connections and lore of the Mandalorian culture 
And doing so, we will look at The Clone Wars again by going to Season 3, Episodes 5 and 6. So, until then, Thomas Anherho, thank you for joining me and sharing the secrets of Star Wars. It was definitely a pleasure. Enjoyed it. And Angela Cialana, thanks for joining us this evening. Peace out. Once again, I'm Father Andrew Kinstetter. Thank you for listening to The Secrets of Star Wars on StarQuest. Quest.